good to be with you this morning. Hi, kids. Hi. Oh, that's so cute. Uh, kids, if you're here, do me a favor, just raise your hand. Let me see, let me see where you're at. A couple of you. Okay, oh, there we go. Some really enthusiastic ones. Yeah, I see that. That was good. Okay, so I got a couple questions for you. Hang with me and answer these questions. Just raise your hand if the answer is yes. Who uh, celebrated Christmas yesterday? Yep, okay. Who hung out with family yesterday? Yep, all right. Who got some cool presents yesterday? Cool. Who had a really good day yesterday? Who's excited to be at church this morning? <laughs> good I'm glad I'm so glad because here's the deal yesterday we gathered with family right today is another day that we gather with family this here is the family of God of which each and every one of you are an essential part of without you we're missing something right the family of God is not just made up of adults it is made up of the children of God of which we all are right and so there, there are many Sundays when our kids are, are in um, kids' church, which is awesome, and I'm sure they love it, and, but there are some moments where we bring the family together, and this is one of those times, and I'm just really excited to be here with you, with everybody, and I really do hope that everyone had a good Christmas yesterday. Um, so now, today, we are transitioning into a new series. Uh, before we do, I, I just want to say thank you to Pastor Chris that just that year-end review, that bird's-eye view of, of what God is doing in our community is just so exciting. Last, uh, last service, I was saying that I, I didn't play much sports in high school or anything, but I feel like that was like the coach gathering the, the, the team together and giving them a rousing you know, speech before they go out into the big game. But again, I have no idea if that's true or not. I just feel really excited, and I, that's the only thing I can equate it to. Um, but really, thank you. It's just, it's just exciting to see where God what God has done, and then just that idea of the best is yet to come. I really believe that, that God's best is still in front of us. Um, so now as we kind of transition into this new year, uh, the year, the new year isn't here yet, right? We still have a couple of days ahead of us, but a lot of us are probably already thinking towards that end, right? We're probably thinking of goals we want to accomplish next year, or what this next year will be for us, for our family. I know this next year is going to be a big one for me and my family. My, my wife is pregnant, and we're going to be having a baby this next year. Yeah, like, oh, right. <laughs> um, but uh, so a lot of things are happening, and it's during this time that we kind of reorient our, our thinking a little, little bit to think more about what's next, right? What, what, what does the future hold? And we are moving into a series that will lead us into this next year, and carry us through, and, it, and it's kind of about hitting the refresh button, thinking about what God has done in our community, in this church, and where he's taking us, right? It's kind of a visioning series, where, where God is leading us, and what God has done, and celebrate what God has done, and how we have operated with him in this year. Um, and so the beginning of this inaugural sermon of this series, uh, a while ago, Pastor Chris and I decided that we'd, we'd call it Our Name, in kind of conjunction with the rest of the sermon titles, as I was thinking about our name and, and just that phrase, um, I was kind of thinking a bunch of different routes, which is why I'd like to talk to you a little bit today about Shakespeare. Right, that, that connection makes sense, right? Yeah, okay, yeah, cool, thanks, Brian. All right, um, so what I, as I was thinking about our name and, and what kind of goes into a name, I was thinking about Shakespeare and a little known work of his called Romeo and Juliet. I'm not sure anyone's ever heard of that. 
<laughs> no, <laughs> no. Okay, well, if you haven't, what, what the story is generally about is about two, pe- two young people who fall in love, but their families are at odds, so they can't be together, and they're both really sad about it. And yeah, I won't, I won't ruin the end for you, but go read it and maybe go see the play or something um, in your free time, in your abundance of free time. Go read that play. Um, so there's a scene in it, though, where Juliet is really upset that she can't be with Romeo because of her family, and she's kind of talking to the sky and letting out her frustration, and she lets out this phrase, and she asks the question, what's in a name, right? The reason she can't be with Romeo is because of his name, his last name. His family is against her family because of their social standing, and she just says, what's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. And she's essentially saying it's the essence of a thing that that gives it a name, right? It's the essence of a thing that makes it worthwhile, not its arbitrarily assigned name or, or, or its title. It, it's the thing itself, right? It, she loves Romeo. She doesn't love her, his name, right? So she just lets this out, what's in a name? And I started thinking about that question. What is in a name? What all goes into the power and the essence of a name? And especially as I consider our name, Emmanuel Covenant Church, what's in that name for us, and how should we respond to it? And as I stopped to think about Juliet's question, I began to think, you know, she's got a strong, kind of a strong point here. If we called a rose any other name, it would still bloom, it would still be beautiful, it would still smell great. It, it, it doesn't matter if we call it an orange or if we call it a rose. It's going to do its thing. But at the same time, the problem I have with this idea is that the naming of a thing should not only be concerned with its title. Am I right? To assume as such, we create a very limited understanding of the significance of a name. Because, yes, names are useful titles that we use to distinctive, distinctive, distinctive eyes. I just made up a word. Um, to, to, what's the word I'm looking for? Distinguish. Distinguish. That's all right there. Thank you distinguish things from other things, right? But at the same time, to stop at that point when considering the potential of a name is as silly as a family hating another because of their social standing. You see, a name can imply purpose, intention, and meaning. It can, it can be a roadway or direction. It can call a person toward a purpose. An arbitrary name that is random and, and is used to dis- as a distinctive for purpose, has a hollow pool of meaning, but a name that is chosen with, the intention, with intentionality brings about purpose. Intention in a name brings about purpose. Juliet's question, what's in a name, I think is a good catalyst for us to start this new year and this new series. My thesis for today is, is, is pretty simple, and if you're taking notes today, I encourage you to write this down, but it's simply this. A name has the potential to call out a purpose, right? But we've all heard of untapped potential, right? That, that idea, that visual of, of liquid inside this big barrel, that barrel being tapped, and, and if, it, if the barrel is untapped, the potential just stays there. It doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't do anything, right? So in order for the potential of a name to do something, We need to untap it, which is kind of what we'll be doing today. This series that we're moving into is called Emmanuel.Church, and it's been inspired by some new things that God has done in our community and a renewed desire to revisit and refocus ourselves 
on what it means for us, as much as it depends on us, to be God with us. And, and like Pastor Chris said, it, what does it mean for us to be God-honoring, God-honoring in our community? You know, I just want to say, I, I've been a part of this church uh, for about five years now, and I've been on staff since May, and this community is really unique. Uh, I mean, I second what Pastor Chris said, that there is a hunger for God's word in this community, that there is a desire to see God at work, to partner with God in his work, and I'm so grateful to be here. I'm so thankful to be here. So thank you for your faithfulness, and I hope today that we are collectively encouraged by the name that God has given us as we move forward. I just want to say that. And during the weeks ahead, we're going to be utilizing a tool that's been put out by the covenant offices in our area. And if you don't know, we are a part of the Evangelical Covenant Church, which is, is, a, is a large denomination that spreads across the whole world, and we're a small part of it. And they put out this, this brochure, to, and not only a brochure, but a, classes and a bunch of different things called 10 Healthy Missional Markers. And in later weeks, you'll see a little uh, insert in your bulletin. And basically, it, it presents uh, 10 principles that that. Are, that should be a part of a missional church. And as Pastor Chris and I were talking about how we want to use these, and, and we, Pastor Chris had this great idea of there are some things that should be true of every church, right? There are some things that should be true of every community of Jesus. The centrality of the word, missional thinking, generosity. These are things that, that should be in our DNA. And, and these are a part of the 10 healthy missional markers. And as we move forward in this series, We'll reference them because we want them to be certainly a part of this church. So today, we'll begin at the beginning, which for us is our name, and try to answer Juliet's question. So as we start, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just invite you to be in this place. We thank you, God, for this family you've gathered together. May we celebrate in your presence with us. God, I pray that your word would go forth today, that, that it would stick into our hearts and that we would, we would rejoice in it and we'd be encouraged by it. God, speak to us today about the significance of our name and what you have called us into. In Christ's holy name, amen. Now, the plan today is going to take us into two portions of Scripture, one in the Old Testament, one in the New, uh, but with a singular focus, which is to understand what God does when he gives names to specific people in the Bible in order for us to glean a little bit more understanding of, and of the significance of our name and how to, to properly live into it. Now, a little disclaimer here, not every name in the Bible is incredibly theologically important. A lot of names are, are just names. And many of them, I don't know why, maybe they're family names or they just sound good. But there are a few instances in the Bible where God steps into time and history with a person and changes their name. And it's always intentional. And, and it's unique in its intentionality, but it is intentional. So we're going to look at a couple of those today. If you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open them to Genesis chapter 17. Uh, if you are here today and you do not have a Bible, either you don't own a Bible or you didn't bring one with you, I would encourage you, there are some Bibles in the back here and at the, up front here. Please take them. People have been taking them and we love it. We love that people are taking Bibles. So please continue to do that. 
So today we're going to jump into Genesis chapter 17, and we're going to look at the story of Abraham and his name change, right? Who, who knows Abraham? Father Abraham, many sons? Yep, okay. We're going to look at that story today. And before we do, though, a, there's, there should be some context connected to it to really understand what's going on here. Um, Abraham's original name was Abram, okay? And Abram heard from the Lord. And the Lord spoke to him and said, I want you to take your possessions, and I want you to take your family, and I want you to go to an undisclosed location that I will reveal to you. And essentially, Abram does that. He, he gathers his whole family. He, he takes his possessions, which were plenty. He was a wealthy guy, and he moves. He just goes to wherever the Lord would lead him. Imagine the faith that that would require. Right? To just trust in the Lord. And God, and God says, like, you can trust me. I will be with you. I will be your God. I'm going to make promises to you along the way. But hang with me. And Abram says, okay, I will. And goes. And in the midst of that, one night, God tells Abram to go out of his tent and to look up at the stars. So he does so. And he says, Abram, count the stars. And he's, Abram says, it's impossible, Lord. I can't do that. And God says to him, so will be your descendants on the earth. Now, this was probably very tough for Abram to swallow because at the time, he was getting older in age, and his wife and he had been trying to have children but were unable to. But God says to him, I will bring out of you a nation. I will bring out of you many descendants. And Abram again says, I trust you. I'll follow you. And then, finally, which we'll read here in just a second in chapter 17, he says, I will, I will bring a nation from you, and I will give you an inheritance of land for your people to dwell in. So a lot of promises to Abraham. These promises would stand for generations as pillars of hope for all of God's people. This moment in Genesis, after the great fall of sin has entered the world, is the beginning of God's redemptive plan for his ultimate rescue. So, with that in mind, let's read. We'll start in verse 1, chapter 17, and we'll go to verse 8. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, so, the, so all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. This moment, in no exaggeration, in the life of Abraham is a transition moment, not only in his life, but for all of the people of God. Because what essentially God is saying to Abraham is, I am making a people unto myself starting with you and your family. 
for generations after generations after generations, they will continue to see me as their father, as, as their Lord, as their God. And then in prophetic history, we see God continuing to refer to his people as my treasured possession. And he does so beginning with the name change of Abraham. He does something unique here that has not yet been done in history. Abram means exalted father. It's a powerful name. It's a beautiful name. Yet Abram was becoming very old and had yet to become a father. At times, it is impossible to live into the purpose we are called into without the means to make us successful. But then God steps in in those moments. God not only elevated Abraham to the level of his name, but far exceeded his potential, so much so that his name required to be reordered to match the sweeping significance that was now placed on him by God. For Abraham means a father of a multitude. Abraham would not only be, exalt, would not only be an exalted father, but would be one to nations and kings and ultimately to the salvation of the world. For when Matthew the gospel writer begins his story of Jesus. He writes a genealogy, and at the very beginning of that genealogy is Abraham. And so when God changes his name, he is saying, I will make of you a people for myself. A nation will come from you. Kings will come from you. And ultimately, my son will come from you. And it all starts here with the changing of a name. Now, riding that momentum, let's transition into the New Testament, where Jesus changes the name of one of his disciples. Now, there are a few things that we should talk about before we enter into this story. The first is this, that in all of the gospel accounts, there is a pattern, a theme of the, of the disciples not quite understanding who Jesus is. They understand who he is enough to leave their jobs, to, to leave their families, but they constantly act as if they don't really quite get who Jesus is. Five separate times in the Gospel of Matthew does Jesus refer to his disciples as you of little faith. And the implied meaning there is they don't have faith in who Jesus is and his real significance. And so he keeps coming. He's like, why don't you guys get it? Wake up a little bit. Open your eyes. But this is not to suggest in any way that the disciples were dim-witted or dull. If anything, I think, it, I think it attributes to their humanity. Because trying to comprehend the full measure of Jesus as the Messiah, as a Jew, must have been a back-breaking mental load to carry. Because they were expecting something very different. They were expecting a military leader that would set people free from the bondage of Rome. But instead, Jesus came humbly and released people from the bondage of their own sin. This was, this was a mental leap that was far-reaching. But there is a moment, a glimmering example of breakthrough in the Gospels as well, a moment which Jesus certainly did not overlook. There's a moment in, in Matthew chapter 16. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to, ch- to turn over to Matthew chapter 16. In this little story, Jesus comes to his disciples and he says to them, who do, who do people say that I am? And they have plenty of answers. 
The disciples say, well, people say that you're John the Baptist. Some say that you're the prophet Elijah. Some say that you're the prophet Jeremiah. Some say that you're one of, one of the prophets, your new prophet. And then he says to them, okay, but who do you say that I am? And one person speaks up. It's Simon Peter, and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And this moment is not is not missed on Jesus. Let's now look at that passage in Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13, to see what Jesus does. Matthew 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man in, which, which is the title he gave to himself. And they, and, and they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, some others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, which is Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. In this moment, Jesus is recognized by one of his own. Peter was one of three disciples that was closest to him in his inner circle, right? Peter, James, and John. And for, for, a lot, for all of the gospel until this point, the disciples miss it. They, they don't quite understand his significance. But in this moment, Jesus asks the question, who do you say that I am? And Peter stands, maybe not stands, but he says, he speaks out, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus is like, yes, you get it. Absolutely. Blessed are you. I will change your name to Peter now. And upon this rock, I will build my church. Jesus does something here that until this point is only ever done by God himself, he changes his name. And here too, Jesus uses his words very carefully when he renames Peter. For the Greek word for rock that Jesus uses here is Petros in Greek, which sounds a lot like Peter. Now, there's a lot of theological debate on what exactly Jesus is doing here. Some scholars say that, that what Jesus is doing is saying, upon you, Peter, I will build my church, which is why many Catholics believe that St. Peter is the first pope, right? Because Jesus said, upon Peter, I will build this church. Other scholars believe that, that Jesus was referring to Peter's faith. Upon, upon your faith, Peter, I will build my church. And those who follow after you in faith in me, I will build my church in them. And there, there's, there's a lot just in this one little passage but what I would encourage us to do today in this moment is to not miss the significance of this moment with, his, with Jesus and his disciples. For up until this moment, there was confusion. And in the blink of an eye, Peter got it. Peter understood. And Jesus, not wanting to miss the significance of this moment, capitalizes on it and says, yes, Peter, and I will change your name because of it. And get this, Matthew, Mark, and Luke use this moment as a literary turning point in their Gospels. 
This is the point where Jesus afterwards turns his face towards Jerusalem where he will inevitably be crucified and then risen from the dead. It is as if the gospel writers are saying when one, is, when one realizes this, the true significance of Jesus, there is a transformation that happens. There is a natural shift and progression that happens. And again, Jesus chooses to signify the moment by giving a name. In these two biblical accounts of God renaming specific people in the Bible, there's so much to glean. There's so much. And I, I forgot to mention, at the bottom of your notes page, there's a passage of a Hosea that I'm not mentioning today in the sermon, but it's another point where God changes names, or he gives out names, and it's really significant. I encourage you to, to read it. But let's focus our attention on just a few things to glean from these two passages for us today. The first thing I want to bring out is, is this point here. When God gives out a name, he connects it to a purpose. God is not in the business of randomly assigning titles to people, but assigning people to a good and grand purpose. In the story of Abraham, God took a man and a woman who had struggled to have children of their own and made them the father and mother of nations and kings and the Messiah. They would be responsible for bringing about the family of God. In the story of Peter, Jesus takes a fisherman and declares him and his faith as a catalyst from which he would launch his church. The common thread in both of these stories is God's ability to take someone and give them a new name that then connects them to their purpose. And what I'm saying here is God has a way of calling out of us what we don't think we're capable of doing on our own. He has a way of bringing us to our potential, to our destiny. Another important point to make here is the high value that God places on names. He uses them as vocation over communication. What God calls a person is what he is calling them toward. God uses names in the Bible to define and determine what he is wanting the owner of that name to rise up and do. God is changing the person more than he is changing the name because he is opening up the potential that is within them or at least guiding that potential toward himself. In Isaiah 62, God is speaking to his faithful people and here they're spoken of as Zion which is at the time a community of God's salvation where God's people, this ultimate salvation place of, of God's people and, and he's calling forth the day of their salvation. The whole chapter comes at the end of a book that deals with many issues but one of them, one central one is Israel's constant rebellion against God and then God in the midst of their rebellion calls for obedience and faithfulness and then promises a year of favor for those who are faithful to him and this is what he has to say to that community in Isaiah 62 verses 1 and 2. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations sh shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give you. 
You see, when God wants to redirect the eternal future of his people, he does so by giving them a new name. Secondly, God connects himself to us in our name. See, there are aspects in God calling forth potential from ourselves that he knows, and I think probably, if we're honest, we know we can't do on our own. Think of Abraham for, for a moment. Abraham and his wife tried for many years to have children and were unable to. But then God steps in and says, I will make you not only parents, you will not only be an exalted father, but a father of nations. I will make you, the, the exact words were exceedingly fruitful exceedingly fruitful this is something abraham could not do on his own but then god steps in what was impossible for abraham becomes possible with god and then in the instance of peter jesus takes a fisherman teaches him to become a fisher of men and then at his revelation realizing who jesus truly is he says i will i will capture this moment and use it to build my church and not only that, but Jesus says that this, that this church that he will build, that even the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. There's no way Peter could construct something so powerful that would be able to withstand the power and allure of the underworld. But Christ called out of him what he could not do on his own. When God calls us by a new name and sets before us a task that is too big for us to accomplish on our own, he, he is graciously reminding us of what Jesus said in John 15, 5, which is, apart from me, you can do nothing. And what Jesus isn't saying here is, apart from me, you can't brush your teeth, or apart from me, you can't breathe in and out. What he's saying is, apart from me, there is no eternal value. I bring that with you. It's as if God is saying, when he gives us a name, when he, when he puts on us a mantle to carry, he's never expecting us to carry it on our own. But he's inviting us to work in tandem with him. Lastly, we must make note of one more similarity in these stories. Both instances of renaming are predicated by faithfulness and obedience. Abraham was faithful and obeyed the call of God to pick up and follow God to where he would lead. Peter was a follower of Jesus that hailed him as the Messiah. My last point is this. God places a new purpose and a new name on those who are in pursuit of him already. God is looking for people who would come after him. Who would seek his ways, who would value his ways above their own. Both Abraham and Peter did that, and God rewarded them with a new name, called out of them purpose that was way beyond what they were capable of doing on their own. And God made it so. God blows their expectations out of the water and promises to make out of them what they couldn't do themselves, but an attitude of obedience to respond to the call is present before the blessing of a new name. And so, I asked Juliet's question, what's in a name? Hopefully the point has been made kind of a lot, right? There's a lot connected to a name, especially when that name comes from the Lord. And I would ask us and encourage us to consider, especially if this is your church home, to consider the weight of our name. 
Emmanuel Covenant Church. This is a time of year where we hear the, the name Emmanuel quite a bit, especially in church. God with us. And I would encourage you to consider that. What does it mean for us to be a God with us community? What does it mean when we leave this place and go to Target? Are we modeling a God with us reality? When we drive down 35W, are we modeling a God with us mentality? When we interact with each other and come and celebrate God's family, are we celebrating a God with us mentality? I would challenge you to think on that and pray through that as a family. When I was a kid, my mother used to say to me before I left the house, remember who you represent. Remember who you represent. And my encouragement to you today is to think on that. Who do you represent? Who do you represent? So, if you would, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your presence with us today. God, we ask that, that you would be glorified in our midst, that you would solidify your word today that you would help us to consider our name and to consider the potential that there is in it. That, God, we would live into the, the best is yet to come in this coming year. And that, God, as we move deeper into this series, that you would reveal to us what it means for us to, to model God with us, just as Jesus taught us to do. Thank you, God, for this community. Thank you, God, for this church. God, would you continue to work in us, through us, and with us. We love you and we trust you, Lord. In Christ's name, amen. If today you are wanting to consider your name or what God is calling you and your family into this next year, there are people in the back who would be willing to pray for you. Thank you so much, and may God be with you as you go.